0: Father it is a wonderful thing to be with your people on this morning. We thank you for that privilege and we pray that as we spend some time in your word this morning that you would bless us that you would help us to understand the scriptures that we would be enthralled with the truth and that your holy spirit would have his way with us and that the things that we see in the scriptures would inform the way that we spend the rest of this day. We pray for those among us who may not know the Lord Jesus, that today would be the day that they meet Him, that they repent and follow Him in faith. We pray that those of us who have known Him for many years, that we would enjoy Him today and celebrate Him anew. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Last Sunday we looked at Matthew chapter 1. Last evening we looked at the first 12 verses of this chapter. And now, for the next few minutes, we will consider the last half of chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. As you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me, and we'll read Matthew 2, verse 13, through the end of the chapter. Matthew 2, beginning in verse 13. Now when they had departed, they meaning the wise men, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. I love that we are here this morning, and and I could tell by the way that you all were lifting your voices just now that I'm not alone what a, What a privilege that we have to be gathered to worship on Christmas Day. And what a blessing to consider the coming of Christ and the great significance for our lives and and for all history and eternity. Last Sunday in chapter one, Jesus was presented as the with us God, and we saw that because of the the virtue of his his human lineage and his his divine birth, and his saving work. Jesus is the Messiah. Last evening, in the narrative about Herod and his wise men, we saw that the arrival of this king presents everyone with a choice. We either worship this king or we reject him. There are no other choices. And Now in the second half of chapter 2, Matthew gives us reasons to believe. Reasons to believe. And the first of those reasons is this. Jesus was providentially delivered up for us. Jesus was providentially delivered up for us. The determination with which God preserves Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew mirrors the determination with which He propels the Son toward the cross at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. So remember that Herod was counting on the wise men to bring word back to him where Jesus was. Well, we saw last night that they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And so as the wise men were leaving, God warns Joseph in a dream by an angel, Herod is going to try to kill Jesus, so you've got to take him to Egypt. What this means is that God acts before Herod does. God is acting. He's not reacting. The timing of all of these things is very crucial. God is a step ahead. Just as he did in chapter 1, Joseph does exactly as he's told. And so then we read in verse 16, then Herod. So God acts first and then Herod acts. So Joseph gets Mary and Jesus out of Israel before Herod even knows what's going on. We see then in verses 16 through 18, you can just scan through there and see that this threat was not imagined or, or potential, but it was very real. Herod, upon learning that the wise men had tricked him, he sends and kills all the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and younger. And so now, if you look back at verse 3 that we read last night, verse 3 makes a bit more sense. Look at back, back at verse 3. When Herod the king heard, that is, he heard about this newborn king, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Why was all Jerusalem troubled? They were troubled likely because they knew the lengths to which, which Herod was willing to go to preserve his own power. They knew that when Herod feels threatened, innocent people die. And in this case, those who were most innocent died. By recounting to us this horrific event, Matthew reveals to us again that we live in a world desperate for a Savior. And consider that if, if this angel had not been sent by God to warn Joseph, that Savior also would have been murdered in Bethlehem. Now, scholars estimate that because of the, the, the size of Bethlehem, there would have been as few as 20 boys living there. And when you count the, the surrounding area, Could have been as many as 30 young boys, 30 young boys slaughtered simply because Herod was paranoid. But God providentially preserved the life of the young Christ from suffering that same fate. And as the the passage progresses, Joseph continues to receive supernatural help in protecting this child. In verses 19, and following Joseph, he has another dream in which an angel of the Lord tells him, okay, now it's safe to go back to Israel. And then he has another dream in which he's told to go to Galilee instead of Judea. And this makes now four times in two chapters in which Joseph has received special guidance in a dream. God clearly is determined to get this child to the right place at the right time. Matthew is keen to point out that all of these things are happening according to plan. If you flip back to chapter 1, verse 22 with me. Verse, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 22 reads, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then look at chapter 2, verse 15, the middle of the verse reads, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then skip down to chapter 2, verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Then look at the middle of chapter 2, verse 23, Then what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Now, we might think that these two chapters are indicating to us, hey, look, God doesn't want this king to die. It is really important for us to keep in mind, especially on this day, as we're celebrating the birth of King Jesus, it would be far more appropriate for us to say that God doesn't want this king to die yet. Turn with me over to chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 51 tells us that one of his disciples drew a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. And that disciple, we can tell, thinks that he is doing a good, good thing. He's seeking to prevent Jesus' arrest. But look at what Jesus says to that disciple in 26.53. 26.53, Jesus says, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, Jesus is saying, all of this is according to plan. This arrest must happen. And not only the arrest, but look at what Jesus says in verse 56. But all this has taken place that the Scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. It was the Father's predetermined plan that the Christ would be arrested and tried and beaten and crucified and buried and raised. So, turn back to chapter 2. What we're seeing in chapter 2, is that Jesus is preserved so that He might be destroyed at the right time. Now, how is that a reason to believe? It's a reason to believe because it shows that God orchestrated all of these things. Jesus is providentially preserved at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew so that He might be providentially delivered up for us at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, that's significant because there are other things that Matthew wants to show us in the Gospel of Matthew, but which he hints for us right here in chapter 2. And these things that he hints for us come to us in this second reason to believe, which is this, that Jesus is the culmination of God's plan to save. Jesus is the culmination of God's plan to save. As we've already seen, there are three times in verses 13 through 23 that an event is said to have happened to fulfill something spoken by a prophet or the prophets. The first is in verses 13 through 15. So there, an event, an angel appears to Joseph telling him to take the child and his mother to go to Egypt to escape the danger from Herod. And look at verse 14 again. It reads... And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you look at the margin of your Bible, likely it it notes where that quotation comes from in the Old Testament. It's Hosea 11, chapter 1. Hosea 11, chapter 1 reads this way. When Israel was a child... I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now that sounds like Hosea is talking about Israel, that Israel is his son. And out of Egypt God called Israel. And if we were to take the time to read all of Hosea chapter 11, we would find that's exactly the sense. So how then is it that Matthew could say that Jesus coming out of Egypt fulfills Hosea chapter 11? Well, not all fulfillment of Scripture is fulfillment of an explicit predictive prophecy. But sometimes there is fulfillment in the sense of an escalation of a pattern of God's previous redemptive work. And if we read closely, we see God at times doing exactly the same kinds of saving works over and over. And those saving works are intended to cause us to anticipate the ultimate saving work of Christ later on. And that's exactly the case with Hosea chapter 11, forecasting what God is going to do later on. And this is what what Matthew is pointing to here in 2.14. Matthew is saying that Jesus' life is following the pattern of the history of Israel. There's going to be a parallel between Jesus and Israel. Now, a natural question for us to ask is, what's the point of that? Well, stay with me because this is, this is very significant. What is the problem with Israel's history? What do we find is their problem in the Old Testament? Well, their problem, illustrated throughout their history, is that they cannot obey. They cannot be faithful to God. And in these early chapters, Matthew shows Jesus obeying as their representative, obeying where they disobeyed, succeeding where they failed. So Matthew shows Jesus' life paralleling the history of Israel. So let's think briefly through the Israel's history as they were coming out of Egypt. They came out of Egypt, they went through a body of water at the Red Sea, then they went into 40 years of testing in the wilderness where they failed. What does Matthew show Jesus doing in these early chapters of his gospel? Matthew shows Jesus coming out of Egypt in chapter 2, shows him going through a body of water at his baptism in chapter 3, and shows him going through 40 days of testing in the wilderness in chapter 4, where Jesus doesn't fail, but he succeeds. And in chapter 4, the great significance of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is not that he quotes Scripture, but rather the great significance is what Scripture he quotes. Because every time Jesus is, is tempted and he quotes Scripture, he quotes Scripture that comes from a context where Israel fails in a temptation that mirrors the temptation where Jesus succeeds in the wilderness. For example, Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread because he's hungry. He then quotes a passage connected to the Israelites grumbling against God because they are hungry. It's so clear that with each temptation, Jesus is succeeding where the Israelites failed. Now, why is that important? It's important because our salvation is not just dependent upon Jesus eventually dying for us, but it is also dependent upon his perfect obedience. In salvation, His righteousness is imputed to us. And so Jesus must fulfill all righteousness. He must fulfill all righteousness. It's essential in order that He might, as Matthew has already told us He's going to do, it's essential that He fulfill all righteousness in order that He might save His people from their sins. So, in Matthew chapter 2, by quoting Hosea 11, Matthew begins to lay the foundation for the fact that Christ is fulfilling all righteousness for His people. So, as, as the context shows, God is providentially pre- preserving the life of this child. These Old Testament references are teaching us about the significance of these events for salvation. God is preserving Christ so that He might fulfill all righteousness on His way to die for the sins of His people. Now, is there also that kind of significance in these other fulfillment quotations in Matthew chapter 2, like the one in verses 17 and 18? Certainly, that's the case. Regarding this this massacre in Bethlehem, Matthew writes in verse 17, "This This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what is Jeremiah referring to there in, in his chapter, his 31st chapter? Chapter 31, verse 15, to be precise. That is where this quotation comes from in Jeremiah. He's referring to another place in salvation history. Where there was weeping among the people of Israel. He's referring to the conquest. There was great weeping because of all of the all of the, the carnage of of that event. Now, those of us who, who know the Old Testament well, when we hear the when we hear Jeremiah 31, we don't think of that carnage, but what do we think of? We think of the promise of the new covenant. Because as as Jeremiah is, is writing Jeremiah 31, he writes of a new covenant. Now, these people to whom Matthew is writing, these first century Jews, they know not only of the promise of the new covenant, but they also know that that this quotation in, in Matthew 2, 17 and 18... They know that that, is, that comes from Jeremiah 31. They know the whole story. They know that as Matthew, that as Jeremiah is writing of the conquest, of that great weeping, that he follows that with, "There's this great hope coming. Yes, there's this conquest, and yes, this, this horrible thing happened in the exile, but there's a new covenant coming. Now what has Matthew done by quoting about the, quoting the, the weeping? And connecting the weeping in Jeremiah 31 to the weeping in Ramah, what has he done? He has, he has connected all of these things together and he is saying, look, there is, there's weeping in Ramah. There's weeping in Bethlehem connecting these things together. He is saying, look, the, the coming of the new covenant is following behind these things. To these people who know all of this, these contexts, he's saying the salvation of God's people is drawing near. There's another fulfillment quotation down in Matthew 2.23, but I'm running out of time and I don't have time to, to explain it. But there is an old blog post dealing with that. If you just get on our blog and, and, you, and you search the word, just one word, just search Nazarene, you will find that blog post and, and you'll see what Matthew is doing with that last fulfillment quotation. But I want you to look back up with me at the middle of verse 15 again. Verse 15 reads, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now a more, little tra- a more literal translation of that verse would be, This event happened so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. We don't, typically, we don't typically understand the import of that kind of wording. There are similar statements throughout the book of Matthew showing that Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. But what does it mean? that this or that happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Let me tell you first what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God predicted the future correctly because prophecy is not a product of God's foreknowledge. Rather, God has, has, has told us beforehand what He plans to do. If prophecy were merely a product of God's foreknowledge, that would indicate that God is passive in history. He just just tells us what He foresees would happen. But, But that is not how Scripture characterizes God's Word and God's work. Rather, prophecy is God saying, This is what I plan to do, and you can rest assured that I will do it. Prophecy is purposeful. And the fulfillment of it is by God's sovereign hand. And so what we have here is not simply that God sees what Herod is going to do and He has excellent reflexes and He counters Herod's actions and then finds a convenient Old Testament reference to compare it to. No, the whole thing is working out according to God's eternal plan, not him His responding to Herod's plan. How do we know that? Because Matthew 2.15 and all these other fulfillment quotations are stated as active fulfillments. This took place for the purpose of fulfilling the Scriptures. There are four of these fulfillment quotations in Matthew 2 alone. Matthew's point is not just that all of these things are consistent with Old Testament revelation. The point is not that, hey, look at how much all of this looks like what happened in the Old Testament. The revelation is uncanny, therefore this must be the Christ. No, his point is much deeper than all of that. He's saying that all of Old Testament history, all salvation history has been pointing forward to these events. And God is doing these things. God so patterned past events so as to foreshadow these events that are happening right now in the life of Christ. Christ is the culmination of God's plan for salvation. And this is going to continue. It's going to continue all the way to the cross and the empty tomb and beyond. And all of it shows God God fulfilling prophecy that is accomplishing what He said He was going to do. and is a reason to believe. When you read the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, you see that the whole of it points forward to Christ. The Old Testament exposes the sinfulness of man and his, his complete inability to keep the law of God resulting in judgment and, and the wrath of God abiding on him. It, show, it shows man's hopeless sinfulness and his inability to save himself And through different people in the Old Testament and and events in the Old Testament, God promises, pictures, and prefigures a Savior who will come and save His people from their sins. And Matthew has told us explicitly in chapter 1, this Jesus is He who will save His people from their sins. And here in the second half of chapter 2, Matthew shows us multiple Old Testament pictures pointing to Christ as the one who who would fulfill all righteousness and bring in a new covenant Matthew is giving us reasons to believe. Ephesians 1, verse 11 tells us that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is the mover of history. And He has moved history to revolve around His Son so that the Son is the consummation of history. Past history serves to usher in His first coming, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And future history serves to usher in His second coming at which He will defeat all of His enemies and be exalted by God above all things so that at the name of Christ every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the intention of Matthew's gospel is simple. Repent of your sin. Surrender everything to this Christ. And trust in Him alone to save you. Christ is the culmination of God's plan to save. This is the Christ. If you reject Him, there is no other. Now, if Christ is the culmination, the fulfillment, the very center of salvation history, ought He not be the center of this day? and of your very life. If God has moved all the events of all time for the purpose of exalting Christ above all things, ought not every facet of our lives be focused on the purpose of exalting Christ above all things? Listen to what the book of Colossians says about the preeminence of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. This chapter shows God carefully protecting His Son, preventing any any harm from coming to Him, sheltering Him for the purpose of crushing Him at the right time so that everyone who repents and trusts in Him could be forgiven of sin, saved from hell, and reconciled to God. Now, it's possible that you may have never heard anything like this. It's possible that you have never repented of your sin. Maybe you don't even know what that means. You may not know what it means to trust Christ to save you. I would encourage you to please come and find someone after this service and ask them those kinds of questions. What does it mean to repent and trust in Jesus? Do that today before you leave this place. Now, I'm going to pray in just a moment. We're going to have a a brief moment of silence, and during that time, let us all prepare our hearts, not only to worship for the for the next few minutes, but to worship for the rest of the day, as we celebrate the coming of Christ, who came to die that we might live. Let us pray. Father, we praise You that You preserved the Lord Jesus Christ, You preserved Him in those early days of His life, that He might live, that He might live in order to fulfill all righteousness on our behalf, so that His righteous life might be imputed to us by faith That later our sins might be imputed to Him by faith so that on the cross He might pay for our sins in His death and then be raised from the dead for our justification. We thank You, Lord, that You preserved Jesus, that He might die and be raised from the dead. We thank You, Father, that in Jesus You provided the culmination of all Your promises we pray, Lord, that for the rest of this day, and for the rest of our lives, we might celebrate the coming of Christ. We pray for those among us, Lord, who may not have followed Him in repentance and faith, that today would be the day. We pray that even now you would grant them to feel the weight of their sin, that you would move them to repentance and faith, that you would move them to turn away from their sin, to trust in Jesus alone, to reconcile them to you that they might celebrate His coming, His life, His death, His resurrection today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.